You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're in Barcelona. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freebert and I'm the host of this episode. I am still in Barcelona. Joining me tonight is the Harry Stars to my Shakira. Uh, did we decide on that yesterday? Or is he the Gerard Piquet to my Shakira? Um, if you don't understand any of that, don't know to what I'm referring, um, you had a lucky escape because you obviously didn't listen to yesterday's um, first episode of El Clásico, our first episode from the Vuelta a España. Um, he is the Gerard Piquet to my Shakira is Lionel Bernie, um, looking resplendent in a retro Barcelona jersey. Yeah, not just retro, original. An original Barcelona jersey bought in Barcelona probably 30 plus years ago. Uh, it's kind of Gary Lineker era Barca. But we're going we're gonna to shelve all the football references until next weekend. Uh, how are you, Daniel? I think what's, I'm, it, what's it like? I'm, Have you dried out? Are you, are you okay? No, I've had a terrible day, to be honest. Um, I'm keeping up my, well, 66.6% record of phone malfunctions on Grand Tours this year. I had a nightmare in the Giro d'Italia when um, liquid got into my phone on the first day. Today, probably unwisely went running in a monsoon this morning. The monsoon that probably most people who watched today's stage will have heard plenty about because it was the talk of... The certainly the first part of the day, the weather wasn't actually that bad at the finish, but um, I went running in that this morning and consequently have got some kind of liquid in my phone again and it's not working. And this Lionel has led to all sorts of problems. Um, yes, so it's been a shocker. It's been a shocker. You're not the only not one. Not the only one that had a shocker. I mean, the commissaires have had a difficult day, haven't they? I imagine them trying to work out the GC. I mean, it took them well over an hour to publish the general classification after today's stage. I imagine the commissaires there huddled around sort of soggy start sheets, all with smudged pencil marks on, scrolling through photographs taken by fans at the roadside and then just giving up and DMing all, all, well, the, ride, DMing all the riders and, and just asking them simply, look, just tell us where you finished and we'll, we'll put you well, down. Well, you jest. You jest, Lionel. But did you see, uh, there is a video going around on social media of what appears to be a commissaire asking spectators at the side of the road whether they had any footage of the bonus sprint. I mean, I've... I've to verify the I've results. I've covered British road races in the dim and distant past where a similar thing um, would happen. You know, somebody would take a photo of the intermediate sprint and then dash to snappy snaps to get the picture. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But no, it was a challenging one, wasn't it, for everybody? Uh, the welter, it doesn't really feel like it's off to... Uh, a start befitting a great city like Barcelona. I mean, I guess the organisers, everyone really will be uh, glad to get out of the city and onto more kind of familiar, warmer, drier uh, territory, hopefully starting tomorrow. Indeed, Lionel. Um, and on that note, shall we have tonight's first feature? Um, it is time for the tale of a very confusing etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Lionel, off you go. Well, first of all, to confirm that Ineos Grenadiers rider, Lawrence de Plus, who we saw um, picking himself very gingerly up off the ground after a crash in the team time trial. I mean, I, I didn't want to speculate on his injuries last night because we didn't know, uh, but it did look, I mean, he couldn't swing his leg back over the bike. It's been confirmed today that he has fractured his hip. Fortunately, not a displaced fracture, so hopefully recovery time won't be too long for De Plus. But, well, as he said, you know, weeks and weeks, months of, of uh, living at altitude, training, getting ready for the race, gone in under two kilometers for De Plus. and I think that was probably on everybody's minds the chaos of Saturday night on everybody's minds when the weather this morning I mean I've only seen it on social media I didn't go running in it but torrential rain this morning and the first thing we heard that was was that the times for the GC 
In today's second stage, we're going to be taken at the top of the Montjuic Hill, 3.6 kilometers from the finish. Later on, they revised that and said the times will be taken at nine kilometers from the finish, so before that final climb. But weirdly, the time bonuses at the top of the climb and at the finish line would stay in place. We'll probably talk about that later on in the episode. It was 182 kilometers from Mataró to Barcelona, and Mateo Sobrero of Jaco Alula was in the first break of the Vuelta with a couple of other riders that was caught but then Sobrero got in the break that did stick along with Andrea Piccolo of EF Education, Javier Romo of Astana and Joel Nicolo of Jajaral and then Yetzabol of Burgos bridged across and well it was a race then to see whether they could keep a time gap big enough to take the red jersey. Piccolo was in uh, the best place position to do that after EF had a very good team time trial yesterday. The break started to split up. Boll and Nicolau were dropped and then Sobrero was dropped as well with around 25 kilometers to go. And well, they made it to the invisible finish line, nine kilometers to go with around, we think, 22 seconds, if my maths is not uh, incorrect, which gave Piccolo the red jersey and then the race for the stage which was curious because really it was only sort of 25 30 riders who contested it on the final climb remy rojas of cofidis was the first to try and attack but then andreas cron of lotto destiny went clear soloed over the top held off the small chase group and pointed to the sky paying tribute to his teammate tail de decker i say teammate Decker was part of the Lotto Destiny Development Squad and he was killed in a training accident last week. So Cron paying tribute as he took the Welter stage. Caden Groves of Alpes de Koenig second, Andrea Vendrame of AG2R in third. And as I say, Piccolo overall leader with Javier Romo at 11 seconds and then a kind of medley of DSM and Movistar riders stacked up behind. But a pretty... Uh, well, a strange day, wasn't it? Because we didn't really know uh, whether they were going to race full on to that nine kilometer to go point, whether, you know, how many riders would, would actually want to contest the stage and uh, a bit of an unsatisfactory opening weekend to the welter in many ways, unfortunately. Yes, Lionel, and well, as we might hear later on, and as we may discuss, just speaking to riders and teams at the finish, although I think... On the whole, it was well established before the start exactly what were going to be the the sort of rules of engagement today and where the neutralisation was going to start. Not everyone was completely in the clear about that and that may well have affected things. As far as uh, Andres Krohn is concerned, I mean, it's been coming for a while for him. Um, This was his first Grand Tour stage win and in the last couple of years he's been a real bright light hasn't he for um, Lotto Destiny and I was very glad that he won today Lionel why because two separate people t- this morning um, told me what a lovely bloke he is and one of them was one of the ladies here that looks after the mix zone uh, Lorena who has to deal with has, she has to kind of chaperone the riders towards um, us journalists in the mix zone and she says that Andreas Crone is consistently the most amenable and polite um, there was someone else who who talked to me in glowing terms about Andreas Crone today and also um, we waited for quite a long time for Javier Guillen, the race director, to sort of answer the questions that many of us had about yesterday and, well, Remco Avenepoel's comments after the time trial. Um, Andreas Krohn was waiting his turn behind Javier Guillen. Um, he had been summoned by Danish television and he waited for about 10 minutes, incredibly patiently, um, in the rain. And um, that was, well, very impressive, I thought. It's just a bit of a shame that it was a slightly, well, muted stage win really I, there were great crowds up there in Montjuic um, I don't think it, it really affected the, the weather must have I suppose it deterred some people from going up there but there were still great crowds wonderful setting we talked about the great sort of heritage of this venue in cycling terms but it did feel like a little bit of a decaffeinated stage decaffeinated as well Lionel because well after yesterday's crashes, and uh, you mentioned Lawrence de Plus, there were more incidents today, weren't there? Um, more riders, in fact, or certainly one rider whose race ended today, um, the young Scott Oscar Onley, 
from ecstasy, the ecstasy of DSM Fermanic yesterday taking the red jersey unexpectedly on his first day in a Grand Tour. Well, he crashed out today. We're going to hear, Lionel, from his direct sportsy Phil West. And on the other side of the, well, the, the, the sort of agony, ecstasy, ecstasy spectrum, or at the other end, and we're going to hear from Juanma Garate, who is the EF Education Easy Post Direct Sportive, about Andrea Piccolo's also unexpected, I suppose, um, triumph taking the red jersey today. The, um, the ecstasy of yesterday, a bit, yeah, yeah. bit of agony today. Um, two incidents in particular, Oscar Onley, we didn't see him crash. What happened and what can you tell us? And then also Milesi towards the end. Yeah, so just, yeah... An unfortunate confluence of events really. Oscar, Oscar had a front wheel puncture, um, kind of the top of over the top of one of those climbs. We started the four or five k descent, twisty descent. Uh, we did the bike change. He hopped straight on, and yeah, I think he just uh, came in too hot to come back to the peloton. Overcooked it on one of the corners, uh, went down pretty hard, and then uh, he's, uh, we suspect a uh, broken collarbone. So uh, yeah, a real shame for the lad. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing more than circumstance, I guess, with punctures and stuff. And you put yourself in that situation, and maybe, uh, maybe just pushing a bit too keen to get back. So. And Milesi, obviously, well, it looked as though I don't know whether a decision was made or maybe the decision was made before the start that um, you wouldn't necessarily wait if, if that happened to someone. I mean, tell us about that. Well, it was a tricky one. We, the goal we, we came to the race with is um, for stage results and also to, to, to learn with Max and Oscar um, for GC. Uh, but also, they're all young guys here, apart from a couple of guys, obviously, and, and it's part of the learning experience. Um, and we, we felt that when we, when we continue with that goal, actually the jersey situation would take care of itself. Um, the moment Lorenzo crashed, it was, it was really late in the race. And I think there was a crash with, yeah, 20, 25 guys probably. It was a really big crash. I don't see how many, but there was a lot of guys on the floor picking themselves up. Um, maybe 16, 15, 16 Ks to go. And at that point, it was really slow and the front of the race had gone. It would have been almost impossible to bring him back anyway. Um, but yeah, we put the focus on the day result in that sense, um, rather than, uh, yeah, put the whole team into trying to fix that at that moment. Chaotic day, right? Yeah. We talked about it this morning before the race at the meeting. Uh, like this kind of a stage is first stage in a big tour. When it's raining like this on a slippery road, uh, it, this could happen. Uh, and at the end it happened that, you know, you arrive to the runabouts, GC riders start crashing and then they start with this uh, slow down, please. Uh, otherwise we are going to kill each other here. And uh, we had that in mind, and that's why we had three riders to try to be in the break today, because we knew that we could have the jersey at the end of the day. Uh, and yeah, and at the end, uh, maybe it was a small chance, but we played the card, and now we have the jersey. Well, is it fair to say that the moment the jersey was won was that moment when Van Bala went to the front and well, did with his hands exactly what you just showed me, sort of said to everyone, calm down. But this could happen, and this is not the first time that we see it. It was super dangerous, people crashing everywhere. We knew that the time is going to be stopped at the 9Ks to go. So why? Uh, I mean, why not? I mean, I'm not saying why. I'm saying uh, they probably riders were thinking, what are we doing here fighting so fast with 80 runabouts in, uh, in 10Ks, right? Uh, we are risking for what, right? And so they, they probably, you know, start thinking about, okay, but what are we doing now? We, are gonna, we can lose everything. And Juan Man, just finally, um, Andrea Piccolo is the guy who he turned pro really young. It didn't really work out that well initially. And then the last year or so, he's had a lot of really good performances, but he's still quite kind of inconsistent. Just talk to us a li little bit about him as a rider. It's the adaptation also to the category as well. Last year, we saw him super good in a one-day races everywhere in, uh, in the States, in Italy. Uh, he, was, he was strong. Uh, this year, it's true that he didn't have... Uh, he couldn't find his condition, right? Let's say like that. And uh, but now, in the last couple of months, we uh, less like one month ago, we we will see him going growing up again, coming back, and um, and yeah, that's why he's here, right? Because 
at the end, if, if he was not ready for the Vuelta, he, he wouldn't be here. So that's why he is here and he had the chance today. And yeah, and I was a little bit scared when he got dropped on the first climb because in the breakaway, in the beginning, there were three, four, three riders and he got dropped, four riders. And then it was like, what is going on? And he had a problem with the rain jacket. So luckily, was that the problem and not the legs? I haven't seen the time gaps yet, but is it too much? Are we dreaming to think that he could maybe keep the jersey in uh, Arinsal? I don't think so. It's going to be a big fight tomorrow between the GC guys. Probably he's going to have the jersey by 10 seconds maximum. I don't know, something like that. Let's see. I mean, we have riders here that they can climb, and but first we are going to enjoy the moment, you're right, and then we will see what we do tomorrow. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of our Vuelta coverage is sponsored by NordVPN. Everyone will know by now that a VPN is a virtual private network to keep your data safe and secure when you're online. You can get protected with a single click and it doesn't slow down your internet connection, but it does protect you from your computer downloading anything that might threaten your security, such as malware or keep you safe from phishing attempts. And also, well, I know that Daniel is a NordVPN customer as well as I am. And I think that when he's on the move, who uses his virtual private network to watch Arsenal games. Uh, I'm sure he won't be doing that while the welter is on. His focus is entirely on the race. But if you are a cycling podcast listener, you can get a great deal from NordVPN because every purchase of a two-year plan will receive an extra four months on top. You just need to go to nordvpn.com slash TCP. That's nordvpn.com slash tcp for the cycling podcast of course and this offer covers all of nordvpn's plans standard plus or complete and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee so if nordvpn isn't for you in the unlikely event that it's not for you you can get your money back Uh, but i'm sure once you've seen the extra bonuses and perks and features that nordvpn offers you'll decide it is for you and like me you'll be a nordvpn customer for years to come well, Lionel, unfortunately, the weather was very much a talking point again. Um, we thought, I, I mean, I heard last week um, from various people who were coming to the race like me, they expected it to be, well, extraordinarily, unseasonably, um, disconcertingly hot on this Vuelta a España. I mean, we heard about Larry Warbass, more from him later on. Um, his training for this Vuelta a España involved well, riding his turbo train in a hazmat suit, um, going to a sauna in a hazmat suit and well um couldn't have been couldn't have been worse prepared poor old larry could he for what we've faced over the last couple of days but um you know obviously overnight a lot of talk about well remco avonapol's comments that and the riders aren't circus animals don't deserve to be treated um like circus animals and after the team time trial yesterday there were other pictures videos emerged of the riders having to well make their way back to their team hotels in what pitch black and um, torrential rain and it all it all was pretty unedifying certainly in terms of the light it shed or light it didn't shed on the race but um, the light that was reflected on the organization and I mentioned earlier I alluded to the fact that Javier Guillen the race director was very much in demand this morning there was supposed to be a breakfast a lovely intimate breakfast with Javier Guillen this morning and a few few of us were on our way there um, sort of wade, almost literally wading through the floods to get to this breakfast and it was cooled off five minutes before I don't know the cornflakes were poured um, the, 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 the avocado and kiwi fruits were put in the put in the mega mix and um, but he did he did then make an appearance in the mix zone later on to sort of explain himself and explain what happened yesterday from the Vuelta organization's point of view so, Lionel, um, Javier Guillén is today's subject of the Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Well, what happened in the first stage is what nobody wanted to happen. Obviously, a totally unforeseen event happened, and, well, the day got much darker than anyone could have thought. We've always held the first stage of the Vuelta a España at this time. 
I've been director for 15 years and we've always done it on this schedule. In fact, yesterday, in anticipation of the rain, we did actually move the start times forward as much as we could. We couldn't move it anymore because a stage in Barcelona can't be improvised. Barcelona is a very, very large city with a large population within its confines, but also a very densely populated, broader metropolitan area. Therefore, any change to the timetable affects the entire mobility of the whole area. You saw what the TT is, the work that was done from the point of view of security, how the police was involved, how the city council was involved, how the organisation was obviously involved. We had several weather reports. Some said that at 6.30 there'd be rain, but not for the whole stage. Others said that it could be from 8 o'clock. Others that it would be even later. But really, beyond the forecast rain, what came over us was that really threatening darkness. If I may, at a time when it certainly is not night time. In the end, I can understand the riders' criticism in the sense that we all expected a different scenario. But the only thing I can come here to explain is that we were all overtaken by events. We are the ones who have the greatest interest in making this work. Out of everyone here, no one has a bigger interest in offering the best show possible than us. And for that, obviously, the riders have to have the best conditions. But the circumstances in cycling are what they are. Weather conditions affect us, and they did yesterday. I can't explain it any other way. It's not that we didn't press the button to make the rain go away because we don't have a magic button. It's not that we forgot to blow harder to blow the clouds away. I don't want to sound facetious, but please understand me. We control the factors in our control, and yesterday we could not control. So, Lionel, this was... This was my question yesterday. Exactly why was the team time trial scheduled for, the, for when it was? I'm finishing very late. Uh, I wondered whether there were television reasons, whether they were the main reasons, whether it was traffic, um, whether it was maybe temperature. And Javier Guillen, well, we heard him there say, well, this is simply what we've always done or what we've done in the last few years. And I, I went back to check this, and he's right to a point um the the first welter that i well um i've done the last seven or eight consecutively and 2016 was sort of the start of that run up in galicia and i looked back there and that was a team time trial and the last team finished at 18 minutes past eight but of course that's a lot further north and way over to the west side of spain where there's a lot more daylight nîmes in france we i think we mentioned that yesterday the last team started at five minutes to seven or six minutes to seven um and then since then there have been time trials some of them team time trials some of them individual time trials when the finish has been indeed very late but there's a there is a substantive difference isn't there between there's a material difference between a team time trial and an individual time trial in terms of safety in terms of visibility and following wheels in particular well our erstwhile colleague graham watson the legendary photographer Uh, He mentioned on social media that in 2010, when the team time trial was in Seville, uh, it was actually very late at night. The the first team went off at, I think, close to 10 o'clock, but it was kind of floodlit. It was properly lit. And the problem last night was that it wasn't properly lit. The riders were... Uh, riding in in the dark as uh well as as they all said and i mean guillen they're saying you know a totally unforeseen event i think a little disingenuous nighttime night, i mean uh, nighttime and yeah, rain I, it's a fairly regular occurrence <laughs> nighttime it is it is it comes around he also pretty said quickly he also well he also said you couldn't categorically you could not call um, that well, that I suppose when Remco Evenepoel and Sudar Quickstep finished, you couldn't call it nighttime. Are you familiar, Lionel, with the concepts of civil twilight, um, astronomical twilight, and nautical twilight? This is so when the, the the sun. I I think I suspect that the welter organisers that they looked at exactly sort of on the dot when the sun sets in Barcelona and that was when Tudor Quickstep were due to come in. But then there's a there's another sort of half hour window before the sun dips six degrees I think you'll find below the horizon line. And that that period, half an hour period, is um is referred to as civil twilight. And I think um Javier 
Guillen was um, well clutching, <laughs> clutching at straws. Yeah, I mean somewhat. they needed a, they needed a light meter out there yesterday, didn't they? And of course, you know it it got the welter off to a bit of a sour start. The riders pretty grumpy about just not being respected really you know is there safety as you said there daniel team time trial a very different thing to an individual time trial because um they're riding on the wheel you know a lot of the teams have got riders whose objectives are later on in the race there's all of that stress you know somebody doesn't want to make a mistake and bring down their team leader um real unsatisfactory start and of course the weather forecast for today meant that there were more uh, tricky decisions to be made by the organisers and the commissaires first thing this morning. Lionel, there were a lot of grievances still being aired this morning, particularly from the contenders for overall victory in this uh, Vuelta a España, both about yesterday and also the measures which at that point didn't seem to have been taken um, looking ahead to today's stage. Initially, when we arrived at the start this morning, we thought that the uh, bonuses were going to still apply at the top of the final climb the bonuses were going to apply at the end and also well there was going to be a i think i think the normal neutralization of three kilometers was going to apply that was subsequently changed revised notably after a um jonas vingegaard i think well he he visited the movistar team bus and i think the team leaders were very instrumental in finally getting that well, getting the provisions for today's stage changed, but it happened at the very last minute. And before that, Primoz Roglic and Geraint Thomas and Remco Evenepoel all spoke to the press, um, all spoke to me and my colleagues. We're going to hear from all three of them now. No, it uh, makes no sense, actually. We, we asked to take the time at the start of the circuit, but they completely ignored it. They... Uh, blew off that request so uh, I feel after yesterday the bunch deserves a bit more respect from the organization but it looks like they are still not listening to us so uh, yeah another day in paradise taking the time on top of Montreal makes no sense at all because they keep the bonifications which will keep the race going yeah. uh, and if you have a five six second lead on top of Montreal then you go with that time gap to the finish line so it's uh, yeah, it, it changes nothing, actually. Could there be a rider's protest out there? Jonas Wingor said that he might try and convince you other GC guys to, to take it easy from, from 10K. Yeah, yeah, we should. I think that's the only way to make the organization realize that they should listen a bit more to us, respect us. And uh, especially after yesterday, we deserve some more respect, but it looks like uh, they really don't care. I don't think it changes much at all. I think, you know, when you went to that circuit, we saw a video this morning, and it's crazy, you know, left, right, whatever, and... Uh, we also how slippery the roads are because it hasn't rained here for so long. So, yeah, I don't think there's any sort of compromise. And after yesterday, I think the organisers sort of, uh, yeah, there was no sort of apology or anything. And you know, it's we're we're not happy with it, but you know, we're just pawns in the in the game, aren't we? You know, it's like everyone still wants to race and everyone wants to hope for the best. And you don't think, ah, oh, I know it might just stop and it might not get so bad. And, but then the way it did turn out, it was it was crazy, especially for the last few teams. You know, they were racing in more or less darkness. You know, and we were riding back to the bus in open traffic with no lights or anything. And you know, it was just it wasn't ideal, was it? Pretty much, the Vuelta director said we've always done the first stage at that time of the evening yesterday. What did you think? Do you think it was, with hindsight, a little bit dangerous? I mean, it was dark, yeah, for sure. Uh, wouldn't be a big problem if it would be like one hour earlier or something. Uh, yes, you cannot predict the weather, but uh, you, you, you can predict all kinds of scenarios that can happen. And then it's also, yes, being uh, rainy and dark. Mm, and uh, yeah, for sure, I mean, it uh, should be a bit earlier uh, in the next times. It's safer to neutralize the GC at the top of the, that climb today. Uh, <laughs> It's hard to agree with that one, how much safer it is actually on the top of the climb, because then it's just down and, uh, and up. Huh? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't really think that uh, that's uh, the safer decision. Uh, but uh, yeah, we will see how, uh, how we do it uh, today with, with the whole bunch. Uh, what is uh, yes, uh, the best approach uh, actually to do it and to have, uh, yeah, to keep the fun of watching then the races uh, for, for the almost three weeks long. So Lionel. Uh, Remco still not happy this morning. Uh, flagrant 
lack of respect he talked about this morning. Um, it was interesting. Jumbo Visma at the finish today did not want to speak to the media. We were told that they would c- communicate officially in some form. We still haven't had any communication at this point. It's um, it's 10 to 8 in Spain. Um, I, I don't know why they were so reluctant to speak to the press tonight. I, I wonder, I mean, I've seen on social media that, that there was some... Um, discontent, frustration about the way, well, particularly Dylan Van Bala and Jonas Vingard sort of came to the front today with about 30 kilometres to go and they invited the rest of the peloton to, well, take their foot off the gas. And we heard in my interview with Juanma Garate, that was key really in Piccolo managing to take the red jersey. Um, I, I didn't have any particular issue with that. I mean, the peloton was still, let's face it, going fast enough to catch Piccolo and the remnants of the breakaway later on it wasn't as though they slowed from 40 kilometers an hour to 20 kilometers an hour um I think they were just being sensible yes on the one hand but on the other hand that kind of messed with DSM's chase didn't it and it cost them yeah that, it, it cost them I mean, you we, know we, by that stage I mean well uh, Lorenzo Milese uh he was in the red jersey this morning. He went down in a pretty heavy crash around uh, a little bit after that, didn't he? But at the time of the, the the slowing down and the peloton knocking off the pace at Jumbo Visma's insistence, I think that came just after Roglic had been on the ground as well. So, you know, so I can understand Jumbo Visma's motivations, of course. Uh, but, you know, DSM were trying to defend the red jersey and the parameters for the stage had been set. And I don't know, I'm just, uh, I suppose every now and again, we have these stages where the, the peloton decides and it's whoever's got the, the, the loudest, the loudest voice and can do the, the, the most um, obstreperous hand gesture, I suppose, wins. I mean, remember Fabian Cancellara on the stage to uh, the Meur de Huy in the Tour de France a few years ago, where really, you know, the, the race was effectively neutralized after some crashes, wasn't it? Um, you know, it does happen every now and again. I st- do think DSM would have been within their rights to go back to the front and say no we're not you know we're, we're going to they didn't but they, didn't. And they weren't actually yeah. and they weren't actually particularly close to the front of the peloton at that point why we didn't hear it in my interview with Phil West but he did say to me that you know we know about this team they have very specific goals when they come into races and they've come into this um, Vuelta España with two big goals and one was stage wins and the other is um, providing the first sort of opportunity for guys like Oscar Onley, who unfortunately is out of the race, um, Sean Flynn, who we heard from yesterday, Max Paul, um, to get experience of major tour. So they weren't particularly sort of attached to the red jersey. And I suppose Jumbo Visma and the other teams that were inviting their colleagues to slow down are sort of fortunate from that point of view because most teams in the peloton would have been very aggrieved, wouldn't they, if they'd been sort of told by the kind of rule of consensus in the peloton that they weren't allowed to chase down a breakaway that was going to cost them the leader's jersey. Let's face it, the leader's jersey for most teams, I mean, I'm not going to say it can make a season, but it's it's a major, major um, feather in the cap. It is indeed. I mean, they still had riders in play at the point that Jumbo Visma uh, wanted to slow everything down. Uh, In the end, I mean, Piccolo and Romo were clear by enough of an advantage, we have to believe. Um, I mean, you know, we're taking the commissaire and the the jury's word for it in a, well, to a great degree, aren't we? Because it wasn't very clear watching on TV what was going on. It was a, it was a bit of a, a, a bit of a shambles. But uh, yeah, I mean, DSM are the ones that would have the right to grumble. But if they're okay with it, I mean, that's fine, fine by me. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't bother me, Daniel. I'm really relaxed about it now. Lionel, what did you make of the sort of splinter race that eventually took? place in the last 10 kilometers it was a, a strange spectacle wasn't it seeing a sort of a fraction of the peloton a contingent of the peloton sort of detach itself mm. uh, about 40 or so riders and uh, again i got the sense in some teams that there was a little bit of confusion about how to play that yeah <clears throat> well it- it was obvious when the camera switched to the back and showed the first glimpse after the nine kilometer invisible finish line. That was the point at which some riders started to sit up. Obviously, 
confident that, that their day was done and anyone else would sort of it, it was a sort of selection by well they just sort of drifted away didn't they and and then as they reached the bottom of the climb it was clearly sort of race on it, it's also tricky to tell from the results uh, who was actually in that group isn't it in a way because everybody um given uh, the same time up to 41st at 19 seconds. So I guess that's the, that's the front group, isn't it, that uh, Andreas Kron catapulted himself out of. It was a bit unsatisfactory because I guess we've all got our heads filled with this fantastic battle that we saw back in March on very similar roads, well, on the same roads between Remco Evenepoel and Primoz Roglic as they broke away in uh, Volta a Catalunya. And no doubt, you know, that is one of the, the best kind of springtime days of racing, isn't it? That circuit, it's always sort of Sunday morning, uh, it finishes quite early. And it's kind of the, the stage races, one of the first chances to see some of these riders. And there's a real sense of kind of excitement. Um, it's always a very aggressive race because they do the circuit a number of times. And I suppose the welter organisers were trying to tap into a bit of that and didn't really get any of that at all today. It was, uh, like I say, it, I think let's let's put these two days behind everyone and move on to tomorrow because uh, it hasn't really panned out the way that anyone plotting these opening two days would have hoped yeah and again i feel slightly sorry for andres uh crone because it had it been an ordinary stage we would be talking you know any win like that when a, a single rider um goes away and wins on their own you talk about what a feat that is to break the stranglehold of the peloton and i do feel i was kind of curious i obviously didn't go around all the teams asking but um i, I sort of wondered afterwards whether some teams were had had regretted not committing more men to as i say that sort of race within a race in the last 10 kilometers because it did seem as though it was a lot easier for a single rider to break away than would ordinarily have been the case well i think it's it, it was definitely easier than would ordinarily have been the case yeah there was no immediate reaction was there there was no multiple riders jumping across which there would have been if the whole peloton had been going into the bottom of that climb and, and riding it at full uh, pace I mean it's just interesting looking back at that stage of the Volta a Catalunya from March Kron was sixth on that stage behind the the Remco and Roglic uh, masterclass at the front and uh, one of his first breakthrough wins as a pro was a stage win of the Volta a Catalunya in Calea I think just down the coast and so I mean I suppose in hindsight you could say uh, Andreas Kron has got form and not as surprising a victory in any sense, really, because he is the sort of rider that's good on those punchy climbs. He just didn't really have an awful lot that he had to beat. Another rider very good on those punchy climbs and pretty close to winning today, Lionel, Andrea Vendrame, the Italian puncher for AG2R Citroën. Uh, and you know who rides for AG2R Citroën, don't you? It's so I mate, the, lo- the, the Motown maestro... Here he is again. Larry's back. Speedy Warbass. Arriba, Larry Warbass. Andale, andale. Larry, to what extent would you say you knew exactly what was going on um, at all points in today's race? Because I have to say, from the outside, it was a bit of a struggle at times to know what was happening, particularly with the neutralization and so on. Yeah, I mean, I would say 85% of the time we knew. I mean... We, we I don't know, our team, we missed the notification at the start about uh, changing it to 9.5k to go. We thought it would be neutral at the top, but then when I was at the start, uh, Dombrowski told me that uh, uh, they moved it to 9.5k, so then I asked a couple guys, and the other guys said yeah, and then uh, our team directors told us shortly after, so halfway through the neutral. How did you miss the message? Are you not? I would have thought that you'd be chief spokesperson yeah, on the WhatsApp group. Normally I am. Normally I am. But I was like, ah, you know, this CPA group, there's a lot of stress involved in starts like this. And I was like, maybe it's good just to stay relaxed and uh, just focus on the stage. Um, but yeah, so I think being on a French team sometimes, uh, it can get a bit lost in translation. But uh, You're the only Anglophile, aren't you, on the team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, here, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it was okay. And then, uh, yeah, it was pretty quickly evident that they wanted to keep it under control. But then 
with all the crashes and flats and apparently uh some guys said there were tacks on the road um so there were a ton of flats uh quite a lot of crashes and uh yeah i think that kind of really uh, upset the chase as well so i don't know if those guys like kept a gap or no um there was a, a sort of splinter race within the race i, I mean i was going to ask you about that how was it decided who was actually going to bother with the last nine kilometers in the team on our team yeah. well andrea had a really good shot for you know he's like really punchy sprinter good climber so um you know it was always uh for him and then uh if we could uh if we could keep it up uh keep him up at the front and keep him in good position for the final um while also trying to stay out of trouble <laughs> uh yeah that was sort of the objective so Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we merengue through the musical Hall of Shame of Vueltas a España of your the year today is 1983, and the band who provided that year's, that edition's official song is Azul y Negro. We featured them last year as the Murcia-based electronic duo. We're also responsible for the 1982 and 1993 Vuelta Tunes. The former Me Estoy Volviendo Loco launched the band towards international stardom largely they said thanks to the Vuelta uh, we also mentioned last year that the band's name Azul y Negro or Blue and Black was a reference to Internazionale or Inter Milan the Italian football club who play in those colours and it was chosen because of the bands because the band's producers um, were one of the band's producers was a part time sports journalist and one presumes a fan of the team. In addition to its trio of Vuelta anthems, they were going to supply the official soundtrack to a Vuelta a Valencia in 1986 and to the Volta a Catalunya, Catalunya in 1984 with Funky Punky Girl. No tengo tiempo, in 1983, official song, I've got no time. Um, once again, the Vuelta helped turn the song into a smash hit in Spain, where it would top the singles chart for 21 weeks. That edition of the race generally was seen as a roaring success with a glittering field, mountainous route, and three very significant firsts. Premieres for the publicity caravan in the Vuelta. So tiny and insignificant you would probably you could easily miss it i think um live broadcast of all stage finishes on spanish national television and the world premiere indeed of the lagos de covodonga uh, now one of the vuelta's most iconic destinations the lagos also saw bernard you know gain vital seconds in the fight for overall victory and the frenchman already a winner in 1978 julie seized control of the race on a famous stage through the Sierra de Gredos to the west of Madrid, finishing in Avila. Two days later, Eno was crowned once again in Madrid, his margin of victory two minutes over Marino Lejarreta. Funky, punky girl, Lionel. Yeah, and one other fact about the 83 Vuelta, a very small field by today's standards, 100 starters. 10 teams of 10, I believe it was. Did you know that? No, I did not. I did not, Lionel. But um, yeah, it's really interesting to go back and look at the the sort of welters uh, of yesteryear, just in terms of how well the route we we've talked about before in our welter podcast. How it um, the, it didn't used to be particularly mountainous, and I always think that you know when we talk about, for example, Eddie Merckx winning the welter in 1973, has to be caveated a little bit. If you go and look at the 
the climbs of that edition and lots of editions of the Vuelta before the 90s really um, there were very few climbs over a thousand meters in altitude it was a very very different race back then and of course well, we mentioned yesterday Giovanni Battaglini he went straight on a few days later to win the uh, Giro d'Italia which was quite extraordinary um, but possible in those days certainly uh, that's how it was viewed by by some of the top GC riders of that era. Well, of course, we should mention that back at, back then it was held in the spring, wasn't it? Started in sort of towards the end of April, ran into May. So it was a very different race. That's why they didn't go to... They couldn't go very much higher than probably, what, 12, 1,300 metres, I wouldn't have thought, at that time of year. So it was a kind of a... Um, it was a rolling Grand Tour rather than a really mountainous one that we, that we see today. Lionel, speaking of Italians at the Vuelta, is Andrea Piccolo going to win the Vuelta? I don't think so. I wouldn't have thought so, no, but good for him and his team. I think uh, I'll be corrected in Corrections Corner. Quite happy to stand in Corrections Corner tomorrow. Uh, it's a bank holiday here in the UK, so I'll just spend the day in Corrections Corner if this is wrong. But I think this is the first time that that team, uh, EF Education Easy Post and all of its previous names, the Slipstream Organisation, has led the Vuelta. I think I think you could be right. Um, I also think I could be wrong about this as well. I think did we do a sort of preview, a season's preview episode? I tipped Andrea Piccolo as one of the revelations of the season. I can't remember whether it was this year or last year, but yeah, he's an interesting guy. He was a, a really fantastic under twenty-three rider in Italy and turned professional and very young, as I alluded to in that interview with Juanma Garate earlier, and really struggled in his first year at Astana so much so that they, um, well, they they decided that. He, he really should have stayed as an under-23 for a lot longer than he did. Um, but his career is very much back on track these days. Um, really interesting rider. Going to be interesting to see how he gets on on the way to Arinsal tomorrow. Uh, Lionel, talking of, or speaking of which... La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Lionel, the cena de ayer, yesterday's dinner, very easy and short because I didn't get dinner last night no like, you're kidding me I know no, it was we, I know it was late but surely in Barcelona yeah. you would have got something at that time we got no we returned to Cabrils oh, of as course. talked about yesterday mm. in, in to the north of Barcelona and there were you know there were f- restaurants in the village that were full of people and um, yeah there was much revelry but it was too late we were told it was too late um oh. so we got a bowl a little bowl of olives and a glass of red wine at our hotel wow so yeah Missed dinner so, yeah. on day one yeah that's never um, the good before. news the good news is lionel i'm not going to say you're relieved of etapa de mañana duties tonight but we are very privileged tonight to have well a local expert a local hero adopted local hero uh, Dan Martin, Dan Martin lives at the bottom of tomorrow's final climb, and well, he contributed from afar. Um, Dan's wife Jess is is awaiting. Well, they're both awaiting the birth of what will be their third child. Um, any moment, um, this might unfortunately mean that Dan can't appear on the podcast tomorrow, but we hope he will. Anyway, this is what Dan had to say about tomorrow's stage. Stage two, Arensal. Yeah, the uh, actually. The start of the stage could be crucial because the climb out of Solsona is actually quite tough. A lot of those roads are, although they're quite big, they're really technical up and down climbing. So the brake hasn't gone by the time it gets to those first rolling roads. It's going to be a really tough stage. Weather's looking good tomorrow though, so that takes a lot of the emphasis away on, uh, on positioning on those roads. Then you've got the long climb up from Luceu all the way up to Canillo for the start of Caldordino. Caldordino is not a hard climb. It's uh, the altitude does get to you, but the descent is very tricky. Although quite straightforward in training, and it's under the trees. There's a lot of pine needles this time of year. A little bit of a broken road in places. It's a lot very changeable. Some some parts of the descent are very very good surface, just renewed. Well, some of the descent is just resurfaced. Then other parts has got a little bit of crack, a little bit of gravelly dust. I'm sure they'll do a bit of a job of cleaning it up tomorrow but with the recent rain and there'll be a lot of leaves on the road pine needles and it could be quite tricky but it's very very fast 
especially the first two kilometers is a long straight section into a tight hairpin which could be quite tricky but it's definitely going to line out the group and then there's almost no flat off the bottom of the downhill you can it starts there's one probably one kilometer of flat through the town of la masana where i live so i'm literally my house is about yeah right at the bottom of the final climb so the final climb to Aronsel starts from La Masana on steady roads. Well, it's not the official start of the climb. It's probably like three, four percent for two kilometers before you hit the climb proper. I've always said about the climb to Aronsel, it's one that needs to be used in the race. In fact, I've actually said before that it's the hardest climb never to have been raced up. For me, it's a great racing climb. It offers a lot of opportunities for attacking. The climb starts up through the town, not super pretty, but very straight roads, hard like easy to position some steep sections it's quite regular the gradient there's a steep section especially after up through the town after about 1.5k and then it flattens off until or flattens off (laughs) there's a flat section uh before you really it really opens out and you get some magnificent views there's two two hairpins back to back quite quite close together and then the real climbing starts with about 4k to go. There's two kilometers, average 10%. The stretches are 12, 13%. There's one kilometer basically straight. It's a great gradient for for attacking. As the guys behind on, on your wheel are not getting much benefit from the draft, but you can make a good acceleration for not much power. When the gradient's steeper, you have to make a much higher power output to accelerate. Whereas this type of gradient, around 10, 12%, is what I used to love racing on because you can really make a big gap very quickly. The hardest part of the climb is only 4K, and then 4K to the finish. And then the last 1.5K, it really does flatten off again before we have between 1.5K to go and about 1K to go. There's 500 meters, there's even a flat section, even a little tiny downhill section. And you really take some speed into the last kilometer when you've only got about 500 meters left of climbing before a little bit of a technical but flatter finish. I'm not exactly sure where the finish line is, but it really is a beautiful place to finish a bike race. And it's a climb that really suits guys like Roglic and, and Remco. I think we're going to see fireworks tomorrow. It's a first opportunity to really make a, a difference and just get some morale, see where everybody's at. I don't think we're going to see huge gaps, but we're definitely going to see some attacking because it's just such a, it's a climb that really facilitates attacks. It really encourages attacks just because of that steeper gradients. And you can, there's, a, there's five back-to-back hairpins between three and 2K to go. That it's just really a beautiful stretch of road, quite steep gradients, but it, and I'm sure the atmosphere will be really great up there tomorrow. Well, Lionel, what a very comprehensive preview of tomorrow's stage that was from Dan Martin. Absolutely, meter by meter almost, wasn't it? I mean, the, the pine needles on the, 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 the back-to-back hairpins, um, I'm eager to see it. I mean, as you know, I'm a big fan of Andorra, love it. won't won't hear a word said against it what's interesting though is you know we're going to go into what is a proper mountain stage it isn't uh it isn't just a kind of flat run i mean it's never a flat run when they go into andorra anyway because they've got to gain uh, altitude all the way but there's a significant climb before the final climb as well so it's a proper mountain stage and i was just wondering about the kind of virtual gc because uh, I don't know, Roman Bardet in fourth at the moment, 13 seconds off the red jersey. Uh, he's going to come under a bit of pressure from the likes of Enric Mass and Ina Rubio of Movistar, who are tied on time Enric with Mas, him. Andorra, yeah. re- Andorra resident, one of scores of Andorra residents in the Vuelta Peloton. But I would say, Lionel, that Enric Mass, if I had to name a favourite to be in red tomorrow night, I would say Enric Mass would be my favourite. 13 seconds down on Piccolo. Um, he's in a group. There are other candidates in that group. Uh, Juan Baldé, as you mentioned. Max Poole, the young Englishman. We saw how well he climbs at the uh, Dauphiné. Even Einer Rubio, the highest rider at this Vuelta España. Ah. In, terms of birth, in terms of birthplace, anyway. Um, according to my calculations the other day, born at 2,900 metres or so above sea level. Um, if you'd said, if you talked about the highest rider at a Vuelta in España in the 90s, it would have been <laughs> something quite 
different, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, or even well, I was into the well into the two thousands. There were some pretty high editions then, weren't there? And all sorts of things going on there, weren't there? Uh, sort of uh, chimeric twins. That was one edition, wasn't it? Uh, but we haven't got time to go into all of that. I mean, uh, quite an astound, an astounding uh, bit of speculation there, Daniel. I mean, Remco Evenepoel is only six seconds behind. Enric Mass, I mean, he's got to be in that category of uh, likely candidates to take the red jersey tomorrow, hasn't he already? So race on, race on very much so. Speaking of Andorra, Andorra residence, Lionel, um, I don't know whether I'm going to go into detail about this, but I heard a lot of interesting gossip this morning um, about, well, Ineos Grenadiers, of course, a lot of talk about them and their lack of activity in the transfer market. Um I don't know whether you have been following the Carlos Rodriguez saga, but um, Sebastian Unthue of Movistar gave an interview the other day where he, I mean, if we didn't already know that Carlos Rodriguez is going to stay at Ineos, <clears throat> it was pretty clear from that that Movistar have given up hope in spite of the existence, we think of a, well, we know of a, of a pre-contract agreement there's going to be there's going to have to be some compensation that someone I, who pays in that situation is it Carlos Rodriguez and his representative or Ineos oh, I would have um, thought for I mean there was, there, was a, there was a real moment in the Tour de France where it, and, it, and actually it was before he won the stage as well but there was a kind of a real shift in uh, the attitude of the likes of Steve Cummings and Rod Ellingworth and others that I was asking about Rodriguez at the Tour de France I mean Steve Cummings was very much in the in the camp of I hope he stays but he's kind of too far down the decision making process I guess the decision had been made you know months before they'd not tied him up they didn't you know he was probably uh, well certainly for his Tour de France performance this year underpaid so was due uh, you know a, a bump up in in uh, terms of salary but there really was a moment where it kind of felt very much like Ineos had kind of got their finger out and sorted it out and, and that he was going to stay and, and not go to Movistar. Um, I think, I can't remember where we were. We were in somewhere, oh, the tour was a bit of a blur, but um, I spoke to Rod Ellingworth and there was a sort of uh, an, an interview I did with him where if you could have seen his facial expression, you'd have pretty much picked up yeah, that he was staying. Yeah, I've... I've heard, I've heard in the last 48 hours, there seems to have been a key date where everything sort of pivoted for Ineos and their transfer strategy. Um, someone said to me today, it was, I think, the 17th of July, and it coincided, it coincided, I think, with Dave Brailsford visiting the um, Tour de France. That might be coincidence. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of word on the street, there's a, there's, there's a lot of talk at the Vuelta España about Ineos's uh, transfer strategy and there's been a lot of talk I mentioned Andorra and there was talk on social media last night one of the Spanish radio journalists um, talked about Carlos Verona not coming to the Vuelta not being picked and there was speculation about this being to do with his agent and this journalist um, for Spanish radio said that he Verona has the same agent as Carlos Rodriguez and there was a link there that's actually not the case uh, Carlos Verona is uh, represented by someone else uh, Manuel Quinciato in fact the former rider um, but Verona is an intriguing case um, Tobias Foss I think people know that both of those riders thought for months that they were going to join Ineos Grenadiers and it all went very very cold around about that date the 17th of July um, incidentally on Carlos Verona um, I would keep your eye on another English-speaking, predominantly English-speaking Anglophone team that, um, well, they have certainly been very, very active on the transfer market this summer. Um, as active as Ineos have been inactive so far. That's do, all I'll say. Do you mean they so haven't, they haven't quite out. made their way into the Carlos Verona aisle, but it's the next one in their sights? <laughs> I think you might be spot on with that. Just down, um, from, like this. just down from the ice creams and the fresh meat, Carlos Verona aisle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lionel, it feels as though this is an opportune moment to say goodbye for this evening. If there's any chance of me getting uh, dinner tonight, I need to seize it. Um, I'm also looking forward to going to Andorra tomorrow because I think I've got a fighting chance of well, either getting my phone fixed or buying a new, slightly discounted phone in Andorra. So um, couldn't yeah, have happened. Talk. Couldn't have happened in a better place for you. Well, Daniel. this is the thing. The lo- I think I don't know whether it was the last time we seem to go to Andorra every year, but um, on the eve of us going to Andorra a few yes. years ago, I got all of my possessions stolen from my car. 
um, in oh, Igualada it, in Catalonia. Right. Yeah. And when I say all of my possessions, this is someone who lives out of a suitcase for a large, large portion of the year. It really was all of my possessions. Uh, um, do you Lionel, know what? Sorry, just on that, because that brings back a very fond memory because I was bowing out of my stint on the Vuelta and handing the baton over to Richard Moore a very dear friend, of course, and and we uh, we kind of st- crossed over and stayed in Barcelona because there was some shenanigans with the hire car. I can't quite remember what it was. I had to, yeah, I had to get Richard put on the hire car so he could then rejoin the race. So we stayed in Barcelona, actually not far from where the intermediate sprint was today, uh, incidentally. And um, I'm afraid we did have a few jokes at your expense that evening oh, over, a, over a beer, imagining you going to Andorra to kind of replenish your suitcase and turning up the next day stage in a sort of Sergio Tacchini tracksuit, feeler trainers, all the discounted clobber from the, the sportswear shops there. But uh, no, no, you've, you've got better taste than that, haven't you? Can I just mention one more thing before we go? Because uh, we didn't really um, give Matteo Sobrero, um, the, the, you know, the, the credit he deserved for kind of getting in that very first break uh, when it was caught going in the second one and uh, snaffling the points and, and getting the King of the Mountain jersey, which is, uh, well, we're going to talk welter jerseys at some point later in the race, but it's currently white with big blue spots, possibly, um, you know, signifying the raindrops in Barcelona this weekend. But Sobrero will be in the King of the Mountains jersey tomorrow. He'll have his work cut out defending that, I guess, with uh, the big climbs to come. But a, a good ride for him today. Good ride, Matteo Sobrero, a uh, friend of the podcast, of course. Noted winemaker in Piedmont, in the Piedmont region of northwest Italy. Lionel, um, it's good night from me, good night from us. We're going to play out again with some wistful gazing from Fran Reyes. Fran Reyes in the graveyard slot again, again. Um, hopefully, hopefully later in the Vuelta. Um, he might even make part two of, <laughs> of our episode. Oh, poor old Fran. Poor old Fran. Fran, I think Fran might be my co-host tomorrow. Anyway, look forward to that. Good night, Lionel. Good night, Daniel. Enjoy Andorra. I mean, I'm sorry to bow out and not be available for the Andorra stage. It's entirely deliberate. Fram Reyes Ando. Wistful gazing with Fram Reyes. Fran, we're starting immediately um, live. Live wistful, live. Ga- this is live wistful gazing. Streaming. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you three minutes. To tell me what's on your mind. What's on the horizon, Fran? Turn around, and yeah. we'll tell the listeners where we are currently. Well, what we are, <laughs> we we are in Mon- uh, in Montjuic, the magical mountain they call it. You know, and uh, who calls from- it that? Everyone in Barcelona, everyone in Spain, actually, you know, and, uh, and also me in my dreams. But uh, I, I yeah. heard the name comes from. There are two theories about the name. One is that it was the Mountain of Jews. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, I think so. But this goes back centuries and centuries. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So what we can see on the horizon is the looming clarity of the sun, which is about to cast upon us. You know, which would be the perfect ending for our stay in Barcelona because there is always silver lining. And this is it. After the rainbow yesterday, the silver lining today. Fran, what else is on your mind? And what else would you like to impart and tell the listeners about? What have you been doing apart from following the Spanish football scandal? Well, what I've been doing these days is walking back and forth under the rain, getting urgent calls from people who have seen a video on Twitter and that are wondering whether the world is falling apart uh, but uh, actually it's been cycling like, as usual right I mean every race in February and March goes through this kind of challenges on which there is some sudden spa- uh, some sudden rain some sudden wind that tears everything down and then you just have to rebuild it and here in the Volta there is hundreds of 18 year olds from Navarra ready to put the fences back where they were so it was not that You're very cryptic tonight, almost mystical I would say, 18 year olds from Navarra yeah, because well the, the company that puts together the finish line, also some parts of the uh, start of the Volta España hails from the outskirts of Pamplona you know, so 
sees. You have to bear in are, mind that people listening might not know this, Fran. You have to explain yeah. it. Yeah, you know, this is a this is a company that is under budgeted, as everything in Spain. So uh, the people who actually are there, moving and carrying, carrying, doing all the heavy workload, these are people that are paid around fifteen hundred euro per volta. And look how the, specific you're being tonight. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I know a lot about this. So uh, they are. They hail from. They are. They are usually uh, high school students or university students from Navarra. They are, of course, they they are marshaled by people who are older and more experienced and that have tens of vueltas on and under their belt. You know, and it's indeed quite an extraordinary feat that what they manage to put together every day on every see or every finish in Spain in the Volta and today when I heard that there were some teams that were suggesting to move the finish line to another part of the town you were thinking I, about the 18 year olds from Navarra exactly I was thinking about how much work would that be would that be uh, in, in, to put the fences back in the track and carrying them three kilometers away from here and deploying them again. It was unfeasible. It was just unfeasible. Sometimes we wish for things, but we don't know how complicated they are. They actually are. Fran, you're starting this world on a very tender, almost romantic note. Um, and I think it's going to get more tender and more romantic over the next few days. Fran, um, we'll catch up with you again tomorrow in Andorra. Uh, hopefully, hopefully. I won't be romantic in Andorra, you know. Nothing's romantic in Andorra. Nothing. <laughs> The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.